Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. It's March 17th, 2017. We're here at the Nicholson Library, and we're talking to Ronnie LaCroute today. And Ronnie, we'll start you off with an easy one. Why wine? Wine was always a hobby for um, myself and uh, Bernard, my husband, when we got into this. Um, We collected wine. We hung out at wineries on weekends. When we moved to California, we discovered that it was a fun activity to indulge in especially because we lived in the Santa Cruz Mountains. So hobby first, and then later an obsession, <laughs> and eventually a profession. And so you, I know you spent some time in France. Was there something that attracted you to French culture or French wine? Well, the reason that I was obsessed with France was that my profession was a French teacher. Makes, that makes <laughs> so, sense. And wine is such part of French culture, which I was teaching about, so I wanted to explore it in depth. And um, it wasn't necessarily the style of the winemaking, but just the fact that it was part of the culture that attracted me. Sure. And so then what drew you to the West Coast? What drew us to the West Coast was Silicon Valley. Bernard got a job working for a startup in Silicon Valley. And when we looked for a good place uh, to live, we ended up in a wine region uh, on the very edge of the Santa Cruz Mountains where there were wineries up and down the street from us uh, where we ended up spending every single weekend. (laughs) And um, I was teaching part-time, but also started taking wine courses. There were some excellent wine history classes being offered um, at De Anza College in Cupertino, California. So I took five of those, and the other people in the classes were all in the wine industry. So it was fascinating because I ended up joining a circle of people who were growing grapes and going to every one of their meetings and learned firsthand about grape growing and even volunteered in their vineyards. So was it... So at that point, did you kind of catch the bug and decide that you were something you wanted to do? <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> so then how did you get to Oregon? Well, Bernard and I, in the fall of 1990, came to Oregon on vacation at the recommendation of our son. Um, since we liked wine, we did some wine tasting in conjunction with all of the tourism that we did. And it was a discovery. We had no idea what wonderful land was still available in Oregon. And the light bulb went off. And we toured around Yamhill, Carleton, McMinnville, and thought, well, one day we really should find property out in this part of the country. And uh, maybe we'll retire here and grow some grapes. Mm-hmm. Well, we went home, and the next month there was an ad in the Wine Spectator for a 420-acre horse ranch that was available and plantable to Pinot Noir. We were on the next plane. <laughs> the rest is history. <laughs> oh, we'll just skip right to the end then, right? So the property kind of, you didn't really pick the property for the Kinsey. It, it kind of picked you then. It picked us. It was, uh, first of all, the timing was amazing. When it, it came on the market um, and was advertised just as we had visited Oregon, and we knew the precise area because it was within the area we were most interested in revisiting. Uh, which is why we went right back to look at it. And we met the owners um, who were actually investors who had bought it from the original owners, Mm -hmm. just wanted to turn it around, told us it would be good for a bed and breakfast and growing grapes. And uh, we made an offer almost immediately. Mm -hmm. And uh, within a month of seeing it, we had a deal. (laughs) And then found ourselves the proud owners of a rundown horse ranch. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a pre- that's a pretty sudden change. It, so, very sudden. So how did you prepare? Well, as, as I said, we were living in the Santa Cruz Mountains. So I um, turned to my friends who were growing grapes and uh, started getting advice from them. 
got as much education as I could firsthand from how they got their businesses going and um, took some classes at UC Davis. We were still living in California, mm-hmm. and I took three different uh, classes right off the bat to learn about grape growing, winemaking, and then doing accounting for vineyard winery properties so that I would have an idea how we could make a business of it. Sure. So what were the challenges starting a winery in a vineyard from scratch? No support at that time, for one. Um, in Oregon, in early 1990 and then into 91 when we ordered the vines, the problem was uh, there weren't very many suppliers. So for most of our supplies, we actually had to turn to California. Um, at that point, we hired a service to survey the land, recommend how to lay out the vineyard. We had to then apply for water rights and develop water sources because where we were looking, there wasn't decent water. Um, the aquifers weren't working well. Okay. I did a well study and found out groundwater was lacking. All the neighbors were trucking in water, even mm. for their domestic use. Mm. So that was a major challenge. But we started working on collecting rainwater. So the first year we built uh, a reservoir, eight acres worth of reservoir capacity. Took three years to fill. <laughs> But that gave us the groundwater to develop all the first plantings. And uh, we did get the water rights. It took 10 full years to get water rights. But we we did it the legal way and got them. That's incredible. Yeah. So when you got to the property and it was was yours, uh, how did you... How did you have a plan? How did you know what to do? Well, we worked with Joel Myers from Vine Tenders. He had actually been one of the very first people to grow grapes in modern times in Oregon because he planted David Lett's vineyard. And um, he had the knowledge not only of how to do that, but of the land we bought. As a high school student, he had worked on that land even when it was a pasture. Mm -hmm. So he knew every twist and turn in the land. So for the first few years, Vine Tenders brought the personnel and did the work for us. Um, We would come back and forth every third or fourth weekend and work directly with Joel. Uh, And then I got advice from my friends uh, in California in in the vineyards. Mm -hmm. And uh, they made a lot of recommendations as to what to look for. Mm -hmm. So that I, I had the questions, I had the vocabulary, and I could talk intelligently to Joel. (laughs) <laughs> you know, um, we needed to make a lot of decisions. So we pushed back against a lot of the recommendations we were getting from Joel. He had told us you didn't need to graft vines in Oregon. There was no phylloxera. Mm-hmm. That we didn't need an irrigation system. There was plenty of rainfall in Oregon. Um, a lot of the infrastructure was still being done in the old-fashioned way. Well, in California... A, the phylloxera had moved in. We were warned to graft all of our vines. We decided to do that. Um, B, uh, we heard about the problems that California was facing with drought. We looked at Oregon's summers and thought, uh, there's drought sometimes Mm -hmm. in Oregon. So we decided, you know, we would have a year-round potential for irrigation and permanent irrigation. And uh, we actually consulted in California to find out how to set up a professional drip system, Hmm. which um, we did not regret because uh, we needed that um, to get through the first few years. Um, Yeah, there was winter rain, but the summers were tough. And we didn't have any vine loss. Uh, Some of the other things we faced were what to plant. The local uh, nurseries didn't have much material and had very little choice. So we ended up uh, using material from California to have a broader scope of clones and rootstocks. And eventually we put in, uh, I think it was more than 13 different clones of Pinot Noir sure. to cover all of our bases because we didn't know what would work. Sure. No one had planted on that ground. And we also put in as many different rootstocks as we could not knowing what would be compatible either for the clones or for the site we were planting on. And 
that, that was a good, a really good call. Because, frankly, there were certain clones and certain rootstocks that work best in certain sites of the vineyard, and only by having the variety did, did sure. we you know, optimize. Sure. So how long from purchase to planting, and how long from planting to bottling? Okay, so the first purchase was February 91. The first planting was March 92. The first bottling was in the fall of 95. <laughs> And then we kept planting, and you know we bought plants almost every single year. The only year we took off was '94. We didn't plant because mm -hmm. we put in 40 acres <laughs> in '92, '93. Oh my gosh! And that was uh, a lot of work. <laughs> we needed to breathe. Sure. But sure. then we resumed '95, uh, '96, '97, '98, '99, etc. We kept planting. Uh, the last significant planting being in 2006 in Yamhill. Mm -hmm. But we had, meanwhile, in 99, bought uh, 95 acres in Dundee in the Red Hills. Mm -hmm. And um, after clearing what the loggers had left, because that had been a forest, mm -hmm. uh, and the loggers had left all the dying trees, all the diseased sure. material. Uh, we had to clear that, so we had to finish with a logging company. Then we had to let it go fallow and plant cover crop to replenish the soils, which had been destroyed uh, after you have a forest, after all they're pretty depleted. Mm -hmm. And eventually we started planting there. So I think, uh, if I have it right, around 2002 we started actually planting there. And uh, we planted about um, 20... 21 acres, something like that, over there, all Pinot Noir. Different clones, several different rootstocks. How did you decide, did you, how did you decide what, besides Pinot Noir, what, what else did you plant and how ah, did you decide? Okay, so right off the bat, in 91, we had to make the decision, what are we planting, right? Because that's when we were ordering our first vines. Sure. Well, we decided to plant whatever we thought could grow in the climate, judging by the fact that it was similar to Burgundy and in some ways even similar to Beaujolais. We went with what did well in those climates, mm -hmm. so the family of Pinot, mm -hmm. also Gamay. And uh, these were all vines that had been how should I say, varietals that had been somewhat tested in Oregon. Somebody was growing everything mm -hmm. that we grew. Okay, so even the Pinot Meunier, David Lett had a wonderful Pinot Meunier, so we planted that. Red Hawk Vineyard, which was very small in Salem, had mm -hmm. planted Gamay. Mm. Uh, that's who we went, um, we went by their reputation for Gamay at that point to plant Gamay. Brickhouse was just taking off, so we didn't have Brickhouse to go by. And we took a few risks, mm -hmm. and uh, all of that worked out. So in the end, we put in six varietals, and we stuck with those six varietals in subsequent plantings, mm -hmm. and didn't go into anything beyond those initial six. So what was your favorite part, or the most exciting part, of getting started, of the first, say, the first five years? The quality of the grapes, my gosh, we were just done. The first harvest in 95, when we brought in those grapes, I thought I was in paradise. My <laughs> adrenaline was just pumping because the grapes came in so gorgeous. And everyone who assisted in that harvest agreed. They said, you chose the right site. <laughs> it's going to pay off. And I just remember that was the most thrilling time of my life. It, it, it was a dream come true. And actually, some of the wine from that very first harvest was selected by the White House a few years later to go into some of the events that um, featured the wines of the United States. Sure. From the very first bottle. From the very first harvest, which, I mean, I found that incredible. It's, yeah. wow, yes, I guess we got it right. It's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> So you, op you often say that Willa Kinsey is Pinot with a sense of place. Right. So what does that mean to you? Well, the vineyard features such a variety of sites, and we decided that, like in Burgundy, we would bottle each of the sites separately, 
So the sense of place actually refers to the fact that in the bottle you can taste what part of the hillside the grapes come from in that bottle. Rather than just go with a blending program, we decided to have six different designates from the estate, not from different places we were purchasing fruit. And um, that was exciting because you wouldn't think they came from the same mm. estate. Sure. Um, even perhaps the same slope, but differences in elevation, differences in the way the sun hit different parts of the slope, the way the wind blows through, um, made it feasible to do all those different bottlings from the same estate. And then, of course, um, the grapes from the Dundee Vineyard, called the Jory Hills Vineyard, are vastly different because of the different soil type. Sure. That's on volcanic soil as opposed to the sedimentary soil that the Yamhill site features. So, do you have a vineyard philosophy? What is your vineyard philosophy? The vineyard philosophy is not to get in the way of what the vineyard wants to express. So it's to do the minimum to be sure that the vines are going to be healthy, but then just let them do their own thing. So uh, it's gentle, <laughs> gentle approach to vineyard management. We used um, no synthetic chemicals, so no herbicides of any sort, mechanical cultivation, no chemical fertilizers, compost as a fertilizer, mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of manual labor, uh, minimal machine labor. Some is needed because of those steep hillsides, mm -hmm. um, but uh, to the extent possible, just gentle handling. And the same thing for the winery. Um, very, very gentle approach to the winemaking rather than manipulation to force um, a given style. Mm -hmm. okay. So speaking of that, early on you adopted the um, adopter of alive and salmon safe and things like that. So how did you choose to do those and, and how did you choose sort of your, your organic wine program? Well, from the beginning, we had an approach that could be called organic. We were using organic methods because that's how we had always approached everything. We had been growing uh, fruit trees and vegetables in California, uh, not commercially, but still. Mm -hmm. And we had always followed an organic approach since the 1970s. So when live um, got going, we went to the meetings and um, we're very intrigued by the idea that there were a group of different vineyards and wineries interested in a sustainable approach. Mm -hmm. And we joined in. And in fact, Bernard wanted um, to help set the standards to ensure they were strong enough and really were about um, a commitment to um, sustainable methods. So um, we went with that rather than organic sus sustainability um, certification <clears throat> and the reason is that we weren't only interested in not using chemicals but also how people treated their employees, mm -hmm. safety, safety standards mm -hmm. and um, energy consumption all of which are addressed through live okay. and not through organic certification. So sort of a it's broader, a holistic approach. it's very holistic. Sure. Yeah. Uh, we early on had a permanent crew starting in 98 we um, hired a crew permanently to work in the vineyard for instance gave them 12 months of work full benefits and in return what they gave us was a deep commitment to quality in their work and to being there whenever they were needed mm -hmm. we treated them as full professionals and we wanted to see that kind of standard built into sustainability rather than simply, well, it doesn't matter who you use, how you treat them, as long as you don't put chemicals in the soil. Hmm. Sure. That just wasn't meaningful to us. So why do you believe that those kind of standards are, are so important in the industry, both, both people standards and, and soil and wine standards? Well, we're in a business that's... Um, <laughs> human. I mean, if you don't treat the people well, that's reflected in the product, as far as I'm concerned. 
And um, it also, it's just not ethical not to be treating your people with deep respect. So we wanted to build that into the product we were making. Sure. So you have, you have a very unique winery. Um, so can you explain to us the, the kind of why you decided to go, to go with the Gravity Flow winery and how you, oh, yeah. how you went about doing it? Yes. Well, that <clears throat> it, it seems to be a no-brainer in that we were going for a kind of Burgundian approach in that Bernard was um, from Burgundy, grew up in Burgundy, was very familiar with the gravity system employed throughout Burgundy because most of the wineries are so old, they predated electricity. They were built into hillsides. But it was discovered that uh, by using gravity, better results were achieved in the wines because of the gentle handling especially for Pinot Noir with its thin skin. Hmm. It doesn't tolerate um, much, um, how should I say, mechanical manipulation. Okay. If you run it through pumps and augers, you're going to be losing color, complexity, uh, most of the aroma. <laughs> so when we saw that we had a site with a wonderful hillside that would be perfect for a winery, we reserved that, didn't plant on it, and when it came time to build the winery, we just dug it right into the hillside, dug a gigantic hole straight down into the ground, removed many truckloads of dirt, <laughs> and were able to make a three-level gravity feed winery with no pumps required to move the wine from one level to the next. And I remember from your tour that you guys had, you had a lot of you do a lot of invention on the fly. Exactly. Talk a, little, talk a little bit about that. Well, anytime there's a problem to solve, Bernard, the engineer, decided that he would just drop the solution. <laughs> so uh, one issue was how we were going to do punch down because we wanted to use commercial tanks. With a commercial tank, um, if you put a person over a commercial tank to punch down, number one, it's extremely backbreaking, difficult work. Also, it's very dangerous work because if you have a nine-ton fermenter, as we had, um, this, that person is leaning over a tank that it, it could possibly be a death trap. Mm -hmm. So we decided we would invent um, a device that would work just like a person since there was nothing on the market that did that. Um, there were plunging devices that would depress the solids into the juice, mm -hmm. but there was nothing that would actually work with feet to trample the grapes up and down, up and down. And we really wanted to trample. <laughs> so Bernard came up with something he called Bigfoot. It was a robotic device with three pistons that worked like legs. At the bottom of each, there was a foot <laughs> that had flaps that worked like toes and that trampled thoroughly into the solids, mixing the solids with the juice. And then uh, other inventions, uh, he came up with a way of recycling carbon dioxide from white wine fermentation to work on top of a red tank so that he could seal the tank with recycled gas rather than purchased gas. So that was one way to use up the carbon dioxide and not just blow it off. Amazing. Yeah, he, he, he had a lot of solutions like that. <laughs> it was sort of fun for him as an engineer. You had mentioned earlier that when you got to the site, you didn't have a lot of built-in support yet. Right. Uh, so uh, how did you see sort of the, your local community grow as, you, as your business grew? Well, fortunately, um, as we worked with local businesses and we asked them, do you have whatever, you know, do you have all the supplies for drip irrigation? Do you have tractors that do what we want to do? Mm -hmm. Do you have the attachments? Uh, eventually, they started bringing in the equipment because they didn't want us to continue to purchase from California. Sure. And um, we worked in conjunction with them to uh, build up the network of um, suppliers, actually. And today, you can buy just about anything in Oregon locally, and people also have developed expertise. Um, in the early days, uh, people were just learning everything. 
it's changed enormously. And, and as other wineries started to move in in the area, I assume they were coming to you for advice. Um, we all collaborated with each other, actually. Yeah, wineries came to us to ask a lot of questions, but we also, we were totally dependent on the experience of other wineries. I must say I'm very grateful to the first generation of winemakers for all the help they gave us. So um, we got support from, oh my gosh. Um, I'm thinking of Paul Hardover at Rex Hill, who was extremely generous in just telling us everything he had learned. The main question I asked him is, okay, now if you could start over, what would you have done differently? <laughs> and he was very honest and he said, here are the things I would do you know, in another way. That was the most helpful advice so that when we designed the winery, we could um, address the issues ahead of time because he had, had not had um, the ability to ask that question to anyone. He came in early enough sure. that people didn't have that answer for him. Sure. And um, we lent each other equipment in the early days. I do remember that. If, you know, short something, mm -hmm. somebody was short a tank, somebody would bring a tank over. Um, we helped some people and they helped us. Sure. So it's a, and we, and we, of course we hear this in most of our interviews about the collaboration, especially in the early days. I'm always curious, what do you attribute that to, given that these were technically people you were competing with to sell wine? We weren't competing in the early days. We were all in it together. We were building Brand Oregon in a national and eventually international marketplace that didn't know any of us. Mm -hmm. So we saw ourselves as sort of, how should I say it, one group with exactly the same goal working together. And sometimes, you know, we would travel together and in fact, that's still happening to some extent. We'd go into a new market all together, just presenting variations on the same brand, mm -hmm. which was Brand Oregon. I remember going to New York where, you know, the New York market, they were totally skeptical. Mm -hmm. Oregon, you grow grapes there? What's that? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> they didn't realize, you know, what the climate was. They all had assumed, oh, it rains every day all year round. You can't grow anything. Sure. <clears throat> or the land isn't appropriate. We never heard of grape growing there, which, of course, was a very false assumption. So we go in as a group. We'd make a, a presentation together. And uh, when we were selling, in the early days, too, a lot of us just shared the same distributors. So the distributor would have maybe several different brands from Oregon mm -hmm. and present them almost as a unit, you know, lay them all out. Here they are. So they weren't actually competing. It was almost all together. So interesting. Yeah, it's very different now, of course, with many hundreds of wineries. It doesn't work the same way. So I'm curious, a lot of times we hear people talking about they love everything about the industry except selling the wine, selling their own wine. So I'm curious what your early thoughts were on that and how, how you went about, how you tackled selling your wine. Okay, wine sales, that has changed enormously. In the very early days, it actually was almost fun. We developed relationships with the strong wine buyers in the best markets, and we knew people deeply. We were, we were friends with the people we were working with in the marketplace. They were our allies who were selling through to the customers. Mm -hmm. And we would go visit them. They welcomed us like family. Um, they treated us well. We would show off the wines. We would have dinners that were events we'll always remember because they were so beautiful. And how should I say, it was, it was glamorous. It was warm. It came from the heart. Now the business is so competitive that if you go out to sell wine, it's... Um, it's very discouraging. It's hard. You might be the 10th person in line uh, to have an appointment with the same buyer. That buyer is tired of seeing people, <laughs> doesn't really want to pay attention to you or anything you have to say or show. And um, it's not fun anymore. And although some people still have deep relationships, it's just like there's too much. There are too many brands. There's too much product. 
there are too many markets you have to go into in order to succeed. You've got to be on the road all the time. That's just not the same business. It used to be there was a season you went on the road. Now it's you better have somebody on the road full-time all the time. Hmm. That's not the same. Hmm, right. It's more like selling anything else rather than selling just one. It's like selling plumbing parts. <laughs> and I didn't ever think it would get to that point, but it is. You just almost have a commodity that you're selling, but it, it wasn't that. Before, you were selling a story filled with glamour. Mm-hmm. And you were doing it in conjunction with a small group of friends. And you were selling to a small group of friends. I remember being begged by the top restaurants in New York to come visit. You know, when are you coming, Ronnie? We miss you, you know, and <laughs> setting up a date. and say, Oh, and... Um, Let's get together and let's go out to dinner and all of that kind of thing. Um, that's changed. Right. So in addition to founding Willa Kinsey, you're obviously involved in the industry in a number of ways. So can you talk a little bit about some of the other industry organizations you're involved in? Well, we were involved very early on with the Oregon Wine Growers Association and going to some of the meetings where difficult decisions were being made. Um, In particular, I remember decisions that we had to come to about what to allow in terms of visitor facilities. Hmm. Tasting rooms. Um, It wasn't obvious we would have tasting rooms in the early days. And what would be allowed in the tasting room? Could a tasting room have a gift shop? Mm -hmm. Could the gift shop feature items other than items associated directly with wine? Uh, Could there be events at wineries other than just wine tasting? Mm -hmm. Could wineries host weddings? Would that be allowed? So we worked on all of those things through the industry associations. The other thing was forming the AVAs. I was involved in the initial meetings to form the Amhill Carlton uh, AVA. First, there was the battle over the name. Mm -hmm. We had to vote on what would we call ourselves? Many different ideas came up. Those were heated discussions. People all had you know, their favorite names. So we finally just named it after the place we were in, but not something a little, little extended from that. Uh, yeah. And then it was a question, OK, so what's our brand? How are we different from the other AVAs? So Yamhill Carlton ended up wanting to talk more about the vineyards, because actually there were more vineyards than wineries in the AVA. And it's still, this, uh, to, to this day, mm-hmm. there are far more vineyards. Mm-hmm. It's really a heavily grape-growing region, which isn't necessarily the case for all of the AVAs. Some of them have more wineries right. in relation to the vineyards. Interesting. Yeah. Um, actually, <laughs> the symbol that was developed, the logo for Yemhill Carlton, shows roots going into soil which relates to, directly to what Willa Kenzie's all about. After all, our logo was based on that, and our slogan, sure. Dirt Matters, <laughs> is all about that. And you're also involved in Salude? Oh, heavily involved in Salude. Um, Salude had started just a few years before Willa Kenzie started making wine. But on our, I guess, third vintage, we were allowed to make a presentation to Salud and ask to become a member. And I was heavily motivated to do that, especially because we were very close to our vineyard employees. And I wanted to be sure that there would be good care given to vineyard employees and vineyard workers, especially the migrant workers throughout the community. Salute being the one organization that really um, they can turn to, Mm -hmm. not only for health care, but just for support in general. It's a very, how should I say, it's it's a trend-setting organization in that I think it was the first organization of its kind in the country Mm -hmm. and a model for a few others that have since come about that provides wellness clinics and case management for health care for workers regardless of who they work for, their immigration status, um, just so that they can stay well. 
it's it's very important. Otherwise, we would have no workers if we couldn't take care of them and give them that. And their their families are supported too. Many people come with families, and their families would have access to no services if it weren't for Salute. Sure. It's always struck me as being very Oregon, a very Oregon organization. It is. And I'm very thankful to the Quality Community Hospital for starting Salute because it was a group of doctors in conjunction with several wineries who actually started the organization from scratch uh, in the late 80s, I do, I believe. Yeah. And um, it's, it's been uh, highly successful. It, it's ramped up to the point where now um, there's far more demand for services than, uh, than even can be um, supplied. Um, so we're always looking for more support for Salute. Sure. So you've, you've talked a little bit about this already, but I'm curious to know some of the kind of memorable relationships you've developed within the industry. Um, in terms of what? Uh, other with other pe pe people within the industry? Oh my gosh. Um, well, with many of the vineyard and winery owners, especially the people who who went through some of the same trials and tribulations as ourselves, um, we became very close friends. So uh, Doug Tunnell started around the same time we became close friends and we would go over and visit him as he established his uh, totally organic vineyard and uh, was battling many of the same challenges on the <laughs> same soil type as us and so we would share notes. and then. Over at Elk Cove, we became friends with the Campbells, who had started before us, and also were people who gave us advice because they'd started in the early days all by themselves as a family without a whole lot of outside support. Mm -hmm. And also, um, we went down to Christum sure. and became friends, well, with Steve Dorner, the winemaker, whom actually I sort of knew him from California. <laughs> because I had followed the project that he was involved in down there right. since we had lived down there. And, well, it, it, endless numbers of people. I, I could go on for hours with all the people's we, people we became friends in. Sure. Yeah. So, this is kind of a big question, but how, in your opinion, has the Oregon wine industry changed over the years that you've been involved? Okay. Very recently, relatively relative to the time the industry's been around. We've seen an influx of people who come in already owning many wineries and wanting to add an Oregon winery or several Oregon wineries to their portfolio. That changes the nature of the business. They're not just people who want to start from scratch, plant some grapes, make some wine, mm -hmm. but people who have been in the wine business for either generations or decades and just want to invest in Oregon wine because now it's a brand. Mm -hmm. So now that we've established the brand, <laughs> we've interested the corporations. So we're seeing folks from France and California notably and from elsewhere investing major money in the business, already possessing the expertise and um, that's going to change it enormously. They already have wide distribution in the world, so they're not coming in having to establish distribution from scratch. Um, they know branding. They know marketing. But very often they're running their marketing programs from out of state. So the question is, will they be representing their Oregon properties in the same way that we did when we had to build the brand from scratch? Mm -hmm. So what I'm hoping to do is educate those new folks coming in um, as to what Brand Oregon means. Uh, I'd like to train some of the sales reps that represent a portfolio that's a mix of California, France, Oregon, and other places to what Oregon means in that portfolio <laughs> and how it's distinctive uh, and authentic and has very deep roots that maybe they don't quite understand. <laughs> sure. How, what, what, how, what would you say? How would you describe Oregon? I describe it, again, let's go back to the deep roots, very honest and authentic and representing only what it is. I mean, the wines that we make represent 
the place they come from and the people who made them. And both are reflected. We've done some experiments over the years. There was one notable experiment at the IPNC, the International Pinot Noir Celebration one year, that was based on vineyard properties and winemakers and having certain winemakers make wine from certain sites and then comparing the wines to see if there was more influence from the site or the winemaker. So we have three sites, we have three winemakers, and we have all those wines set up. We taste them. Can you taste similarity between the winemakers or similarity between the properties strongest? And frankly, there was a mix of answers on that because there was such a strong imprint from both. And in Oregon, I think we're very proud that the winemakers have a strong imprint, but also the properties have a strong imprint. Mm -hmm. And we want to feature both of those. Okay, and um, in particular in Willa Kenzie, um, it, uh, the land has the strong imprint, I think by far the stronger imprint, mm -hmm. because always we've had a hands-off kind of winemaking. The winemaker has a very important role to guide the wine through its uh, process of mm -hmm. developing, but letting the site come through and express itself in the bottle and eventually in the glass. So I think that's what Oregon does best. And uh, it's not always the case for every kind of wine elsewhere in the world. Have you found people are fairly receptive to that message? I think so. Yeah. I think that's what has excited the world about Oregon. Oregon Pinot Noir developed a reputation all around that. And now the various AVAs are developing their own reputations around that concept. Sure. Because we can pick up a bottle of Oregon wine and we can place it in a particular AVA because those styles are so distinctive and that's about the land. Mm -hmm. So speaking of outside influences, you recently decided to sell Wilkinsy to Jackson Family. Can you kind of take us through why it was the right time to sell and why you chose Jackson Family specifically? That's a very interesting question. This is a time when there's a lot of transition, actually, as I mentioned. Jackson family approached us, and we spent a lot of time talking to them about why they were interested in Oregon. And what impressed us was that they wanted to come in and help at a time when distribution is becoming increasingly difficult to bring Brand Oregon and Brand Willa Kinsey out to the world in a stronger way. And they have, as one of the world's largest wine companies, the resources to succeed in a venture that we were finding, finding um, increasingly difficult. But they wanted to do it in a sustainable way. They promised to us that one of the basic tenets always of their business was sustainability in every aspect that it was about the people, that it was about the place, that it was about the product, the way the product is made, and that they really cared about the land. And they wanted to be sure that Willa Kenzie Estate would always be respected that way. I mean, we were really careful not to plant the entire estate. For instance, we only planted a little over 100 acres on the Amhill property out of 420 acres of land, keeping the rest in pasture and forest. And, you know, the, the founder, the owner of Jackson family is very concerned with the environment, with environmental balance. Mm -hmm. And the family told me personally that they wanted to see Willa Kenzie remain like that, a beautiful piece of land that worked as it was intended to you know, treating it with respect. Mm -hmm. So we thought it was the right time so that they could keep the product thriving in the marketplace, but also allow the product, the land, and the people 
to be treated with respect and sustainably. So, and, and I hope that's always the case. So they're keeping the brand, they're keeping the slogans, dirt still matters, people still matter. <laughs> and they're kept on the staff as well? They, they actually offered everybody a position. Uh, some people have decided to move on and do something different. Sure. Some people have decided to stay. Um, that was up to them sure. because everybody was offered to stay on. Did the other recent sales like Pinterash have any influence on you? Uh, I can't say it had an influence. I found it interesting that Jackson family was taking several different Oregon properties with, um, how should I say, different characteristics so that they're going to have to pay attention mm -hmm. to individual sites, individual styles, and what the land has to say. Sure. sure. And so what role, if any, will you have at Willa Kinsey now? Well, at this point, I've offered to um, train the new sales staff to work with anybody who would like to hear the Willa Kenzie philosophy and story and the history from scratch. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope to be participating in some of the customer events and um, continue to give tours of the property as, as people ask for them. Excellent. So I do go over there every week. and. Um, Enjoy staying connected. Excellent. And we're going to go a little bit away from wine for a second and talk about um, your history um, with the liberal arts and um, the like, theater and the arts, and then also specifically with Linfield College. And so first, um, as I just mentioned, you are a big supporter of the arts. Can you talk a little bit about some of the colleges that you support and some of the things that have happened because of that? Well, I've been involved in the arts all my life um, because my family was involved in the arts and I've been supporting arts programs. Uh, Cornell University, I've been involved in the music program for decades. I've actually been on tours with the Wind Ensemble um, all over the world because I was supporting their service activities, uh, teaching children in um, difficult parts of the world where they don't have access to music education and uh, giving workshops and so forth. Um, I've also supported um, museums and libraries, um, Cornell University of Michigan, um, at Portland State University, the Chamber Choir, I'm supporting their international tours. Um, and then in terms of theater companies, I must be supporting about 40 or 50 of them at least right now. <laughs> Mostly in Oregon, but not only in Oregon. Um, some in New York and some in far off other places of the world. I just think it's very important for the arts to thrive because that's how we best express our humanity. And at Linfield College, um, I started out by being on the board of the chamber orchestra when that existed. I was actually invited by the conductor when he first discovered me at the winery. Um, he discovered me at Willa Kenzie Estate when it was Sylvain Frémaux. He's French and he heard there was a French-speaking couple running a winery and he invited us to come to a concert. And that was the beginning of my association with Linfield Chamber Orchestra actually. Um, I came, I liked, I joined. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, based on that experience, one thing led to the next, and I started supporting other arts programs at Linfield, uh, eventually becoming a trustee and becoming involved with the theater program as well as the music department programs, and then funding an arts series so that all of the arts could um, have funding to do special programming. Uh, very often bringing in internationally famous artists in all different realms, performing arts and visual arts, to uh, work directly with students and then to share their work with the public. And uh, I feel that it's, it's critically important to bring this to the community for the well-being of the community. <laughs> we can't live without art, can we? No. <laughs> <laughs> um. Why, you kind of mentioned this a little bit, but why do you continue to give back to Oregon and the rest of the country, um, and specifically with the arts? 
Uh, well, I'm interested in making things happen, um, especially, I, I usually do what other people will not do. If I see there's a gap somewhere, I just tend to fill the gap. And the arts have historically struggled to gain support, although they're critical to the health of a community. So I've seen my role in the arts as being very, very important. Um, I'd rather do that than something that is going to gain support otherwise, um, especially when children are involved. Um, yeah, I've been helping out with programs that bring arts education, um, performance, um, how should I say, classes for performance and that kind of thing to children. Gosh, uh, youth orchestras. My daughter was in a youth orchestra, mm -hmm. and it was the most marvelous thing for her, for her development. For some children, that's what saves their lives, literally. And um, I just need to do this. It gives me joy, but it just, it's, it's something my mother did. It's something my grandmother did. It's something my great-grandmother did. She came over as an immigrant to this country with nothing, and yet she was supporting programs in the arts and in education because it's just something that one did, and it was the way she was brought up, and it's been passed along. Um, so we talked about a little bit about your connection with um, Linfield over the a lot of years. Um, why do you like? Why did you decide to kind of like pick Linfield? You kind of talked about like the um, you just kind of like happened upon our college, but why did you decide to continue supporting this school in particular? And what do you think makes Linfield unique? Linfield's really important to me because it's a liberal arts college in a small community. It's the heart of the community. So much resides here. Um, not only arts and culture, but everything else. I mean, for Yamhill County, Linfield is like, it's like the community center for Yamhill County. It's where people come to gather. It's where speakers come here. You can hear them talk on a variety of topics. It's sports take place here. Um, youth groups come here for various activities. I just wanted to be sure to be associated with this college because it's so important. And I'm seeing it thriving. I'm seeing wonderful, um, just groundbreaking activities happening. I mean, I love the art exhibits that take place that, my gosh, some of them are just so stunning. I, I would be amazed to see them if I were touring in London or Paris and they're taking place right here in a small town in rural Yamhill County. Um, Linfield is, to me, a very magical place because of all the wonderful things that happen here. And the high quality of the education, the intimacy of the teaching, the fact that students and professors work so tightly together, and there's such a, how should I say, a, a marvelous faculty here, so dedicated but also so knowledgeable, very high quality faculty. I just love it here. Actually, I, I will admit to spending many, many hours just coming to Linfield as my place of refuge because it's where I find what I need. Um, what has your experience been like um, on the Linfield College Board of Trustees? Well, I'm enjoying being on the trustees because I feel we can be of service to the college and help the college in areas where it needs support from the outside. Um, it's through the trustees that the college is connected most to the outside world mm -hmm. from which it gains support and recognition. And so serving on, on the board, I, I get to help with that. I mean, things like helping to develop a strategic plan, then implement the plan, um, helping to find resources to implement the plan. All that comes through serving on the board of trustees. Mm -hmm. Um, and then what do you think the future of Linfield College looks like? Well, it's really hard to predict the future, but given the quality of the college, 
I believe Linfield College is here for the long term. Uh, Linfield is being quite creative in finding forward-looking programs to ensure that it will have appeal in the future. Uh, programs such as wine studies, for instance, but there are others yet. And then by continuing to hold high-quality classes in all the liberal arts, in all the sciences, in the subject areas that are critical to teaching uh, thinking and um, judgment, things that, that we really need to teach future citizens um, of this country. Mm -hmm. this, I, I think Linfield will be here for a long time and, and will be a strong player in the market. Um, is there anything you hope in particular happens with the college? Yeah, I hope this college will gain more um, recognition nationally. Mm -hmm. I would really like to see people on the East Coast become more aware of Linfield College, and I think it can be done. Uh, Linfield's been pretty modest in its uh, publicity, but um, it's, it's time to really shout out the message. <laughs> we have something terrific here. We want the world to know. Um, just bringing it back to wine a little bit, what do you think the future is for the Oregon wine industry? Oh, very bright. Mm -hmm. Especially with the resources being poured into the wine industry today, I believe that the wine industry will only uh, become stronger. And um, Brand Oregon is going to just, um, how should I say, expand. Expand both in the geographical locations where it's recognized and in its desirability in all markets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what do you think some of the challenges are going to be for the future? Challenges for the wine industry, for the wine you industry, mean? Yes. Uh, well, competition, obviously. There are more and more brands. However, I think with um, the major players coming into Oregon, players such as Jackson Family Wines, uh, I think that uh, Oregon is going to do very well. That, that actually was a sign to me that Oregon has a bright future. They would not be investing in Oregon if they didn't believe it themselves. Mm -hmm. It's true. Um, um, we've asked this question for a couple of other people, but um, we're at about 750 wineries now in Oregon. Right. Do you think it's just going to keep growing? Do you think we're at our cap? Do you think it's going to get smaller? Like, how do you think like the number okay. of wineries is going to be? My belief is that there'll be consolidation in the wine industry. We we've pretty much reached the limit on how many different brands we can have, mm -hmm. and with that many wineries, uh, it's becoming inefficient. Um, I th I think like everywhere else in the world, we're going to see more of the wineries getting together and forming groups, and operating under under um, joint labels or banners. Mm -hmm. okay. And then uh, what advice do you have so for someone trying to get into the wine industry? First of all, if somebody's getting into the wine industry, I think it's sort of too late to start a, fall, a small family winery and expect to make a profit from it. Mm -hmm. So. There, you have to be looking at other models of getting into the industry. Um, either joining in an ongoing enterprise, which makes sense, or starting something so small that you're not depending on it entirely for your income. Doing it along with some other venture, that makes sense also. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you can get good cash flow anymore from a small family winery and have that your exclusive income. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you've just done so many extraordinary things in your life. What advice do you just have for just life in general? Life in general? Follow yeah. your passion. Yeah. Don't be afraid. Just go for it. Even if it looks like it's something absurd, if it's your passion, <laughs> absolutely rush into it headlong because that's the only way, really, to meet life with just full energy, full commitment, full force. Advice. <laughs> Is there anything else that you think that you just want to say about wine, about Linfield, about life, just anything? I love Linfield, I love life, and I love wine. It's <laughs> a great way to end it. Does anyone else have any questions? No. Okay, well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. 
And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over